You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Welcome to this week's episode of SpyCast. Today we drop part two of a conversation with Karen Schaefer. I have to be honest with you, this was one of those interviews that could easily have been released as six parts, but I thought it was best in the first instance to focus on two. Last week we mainly looked at Karen's time as a CIA operator, where she served in Latin America, Europe, Afghanistan and Iraq. This week, however, in part two, we're looking at Karen's time as a serial collaborator. This included working alongside the DEA, special operations, serving as the director of intelligence programs at the National Security Council, and then closing out her career in government in the National Security Branch at the Federal Bureau of investigation. I hope you enjoy this week's episode as much as I enjoyed speaking to Karen, who was truly a wonderful guest. I went back and watched the Narcos episodes, and it's so... It's, it's such a good show. Isn't it, it? It's a great show, I have to say. I, and I, I knew quite a few of the people. It's just, but it is that it's so funny you forget. I, I don't typically watch shows that have anything to do with work because... I find myself just the constant critic. It drives me crazy. I'll be like, oh, no one would ever do, you wouldn't do that. No case officer would do that. That is so ridiculous. You'd need to do this. And it. I find that I can't actually enjoy the film for what it's meant to be. <laughs> but I have to say, I did go back and watch that. And what I found is I got through one, I couldn't keep watching it though, because it brought me back to so many of the, it was a very challenging time in in that part of the world when I was serving there. And I don't think I even realized the toll that had taken until I had come out for my first R&R, which wasn't until almost nine months into my first tour. And I would get in the car and immediately lock the door. You're constantly on this state of alert. And I found that when I was watching the show, I could feel myself like literally (laughs) like the adrenaline as I'm having these memories of different experiences or, and 
because a lot of what was happening there was particularly vicious and unfortunately another problem set that hasn't gone away for for those poor people in Latin America and and seems that uh, certainly in Mexico it's actually gotten worse. But nevertheless, being part of that, on the one hand, again, you feel like you're on the pointy end of the spear. It's an incredibly invigorating, but not those were few and far between. Typically, I was uh, pretty pretty reserved. Mm-hmm. You know, I was pretty prepared and pretty comfortable with again the training that I had been given, the people that I was surrounded with. But you still definitely it takes its toll, mm-hmm. like everything. I mean, after a year in a war zone, I came back. It took me quite a while to recover. And I want to pivot on to the serial kill operator part of your career. But before we get there, a couple of questions that I always find really interesting to hear people like yourself's view on. Is a good case officer born or created? Or is that a lot about both? I think it's it's probably both. I mean, look, a big we always talk about at the end of the day, from birth, we learn to manipulate, right? I mean, children in their cribs learn to cry a certain way to get their mother up 17 times out of bed to come nurse them. So it is literally a skill that we are all born with. Having said that, like everything else, there is a cadre of officers that just come in and they are sort of, they are unbelievable, right? They are these incredible forces of nature that are unbelievable recruiters. They seem unstoppable. But it's interesting because when I look at what it takes to be a good operations officer, there's multiple aspects of that. There is obviously the recruitment, which is a huge part of that. But then there's also the handling part of that. And the and so it's interesting that oftentimes, and this won't surprise you, but oftentimes the folks that are great recruiters are not great handlers because they enjoy the front end piece of that, the recruitment piece, the finding someone and developing them over time and recruiting them. Whereas someone with different skills may really enjoy much more the handling piece where they're exquisite at understanding how to get the most out of an asset, how to really make them comfortable, make them think creatively about who's in their sphere that they can leverage. And those are not always the same skill sets. And so I would say that you have a handful of officers that are are really good at both, but people tend to sort of typically, in my estimation, kind of excel at one or the other. I would say that I get asked a lot what I think the most important skill is for a case officer. And I would say, unquestionately, someone who can listen, someone who is intellectually, (laughs) right. I mean, listen, someone who is intellectually curious and can really listen to people because at the end of the day, reading people and, and knowing, is this someone that I can really get a good feel for? You have to be listening to them. You have to ask questions so that you really understand who they are, what drives them, what intrigues them, and how you can maintain that contact with them. And so that's, in my estimation, there is no, no more important skill. And I think that 
the nuts and bolts, a lot of the, the trade craft and things like that. As I said, I think our organization is second to none when it comes to teaching trade craft. And so that's the part that can be learned. I think some of the other ones about temperament, judgment, a little harder to teach someone. I always find it quite interesting to think of doing one of those transformation shows, you know, mm -hmm. where you find the most introverted <laughs> analyst and you do a TV show and try to make them into a, <laughs> an operations officer or but, vice versa. So interestingly, I'll stop you there, though, because <laughs> introverts can make extraordinary case officers because introverts, they tend to be great listeners. They're great observers. They tend to be extraordinarily perceptive because they're watching and not always engaging. And so you'd be surprised. I mean, and this again goes back to the diversity discussion. It really does take all kinds of diverse people to be successful in our, our mission set. And by that, I mean, you know, obviously the diversity of personalities, diversity of experience, and then obviously diversity of gender, ethnicity, etc. So yeah, you'd be surprised. There are some great case officers out there that are uh, born introverts and they work through it and mm -hmm. their style and their approach is just different. They're not going to be the life of the party at, at a diplomatic function. They'll be the guy standing in the corner who, or gal who's standing in the corner who's watching and then finds a good time to chat with someone. So it takes all kinds. I think that's a misnomer. And I always tell, especially young people mm -hmm. that are interested in joining, that there's a place for you if it's something you're passionate about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I was just, I, I guess I was being a little bit... Right. You know, flipping, <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, no, no, no. I someone know. Someone <laughs> who's so painfully shy, they can't yes. even look at someone or But whatever, see, you but, are, but, and yet, <laughs> but you ask amazing questions. You, who knows, Andrew? You might have a case officer career in your future. <laughs> that actually leads on to my next question. Mm -hmm. Another one that I really like to ask as well. With espionage, intelligence, people often say, who would be the best case officer? Would it be James Bond? Would it be the, the larger-than-life person that, that makes everyone gravitate towards them, that is just a, a natural people person? Or mm -hmm. is, it, is it George Smiley, who's mm -hmm. grey and completely instantly right. forgettable mm -hmm. and who blends into the background? Or, or does that just come back to your point that it's a broad church and there's yes. room for both? Yeah, there's a broad church. And there's also, look, you're not going to have... Being a James Bond type operations officer at the beginning of your career is pretty self-defeating because the point of being an operations officer is maintaining your cover so that no one knows who you are or what you're really doing. And so to be this sort of larger than life person that's out there and drawing attention to yourself is most of the time very counterproductive unless it's specifically scripted for a particular scenario. So having said that, there are different personalities and people operate differently. And I would hesitate to ever say that you want one kind of officer in your stable. You always want that diversity that's going to appeal to the mass diversity of targets that we're going after. So I hate to say it depends, <laughs> but it just depends. Mm -hmm. And And again, I would say having the option to choose from a lot of different types of folks with different backgrounds is the best, the optimal scenario so that you don't, it's not an either or, it's an and proposition. Mm. 
one final question before we shift on to mm-hmm. the, the next part of your career. Learning this skill set, you mentioned like from birth, learning to manipulate. And mm-hmm. we have two kittens now and one mm-hmm. of them is very manipulative. <laughs> it, knows how to, it knows how to get me to do exactly what yes. it wants and I willingly go along with it. Right. But with that skill set, when it gets developed and like working out, when it's like at fever pitch and everything's mm-hmm. like toned and you're ripped and you, mm-hmm. you, know, yeah. you can do 20 yep. pull-ups. How do you kind of turn that turn off? It off? Like the professional oh, yeah. and the personal. Yeah. How do you not? I want my husband to do yes. X or yeah. or or even like use I don't your know, powers for good. Yeah, right? use your powers for good. <laughs> exactly. Or even sitting here with no. me, you know. I mean, how yeah. do you? Are, are, is it difficult? Are you constantly right. thinking? Oh, well, I think I can. Right. I think I can get Andrew to go off in this direction <laughs> and make myself look no. better. Or, no, no. <laughs> you know, I, I think. Look, I, I think there was a one one of the best speakers that we had early on in our training, I remember came and he gave this whole talk about ethics and about having a moral compass. And I think you're exactly right. It's something that as case officers, I mean, and you've seen this in movies and and this is a popular topic about how do you turn that off? It absolutely requires deliberate acknowledgement of when you're working and when you're not and learning to turn it off. I will tell you, it's really hard, especially to your point, when I was on the street and operational and doing a lot of the recruiting piece and, and that tradecraft, you learn to sort of immediately, I used to joke that it's like, oh, I need to turn off that part of my brain that immediately when I meet someone new, it's like, what can you do for me? What? Could, <laughs> how could you help me with whatever our particular national security priorities are? For me, though, the moral compass piece is so, so important because I do think that that's what it comes down to. You have to. I use this also as an not just when do you turn off your skills to manipulate, but you're on your own so much of the time as a young case officer that what you do is what you write in your cable that you did, right? What you said is what you write in your cable that you said. And so I talk a lot about that in terms of how imperative that is. And it's such a critical part in my estimation of finding the right people who have that balance and can set parameters for themselves. So that, because like everything else in life, there's a slippery slope and you find this with folks who run into problems, right? When they just will start to make small change. It's what we call the tradecraft drift, right? Small change. And then suddenly before they know it, they're completely out of the mainstream of where we should be operating as, as good operations officers. And so it's a really, really important part of it. I think that it's obviously very personal for each individual, like where your boundaries are and what you, like most people, it's like, it's a personal choice. But I do think that we, as an organization, we try to imbue and we certain have, certainly have certain policy and legal and professional standards that we expect our people, you know, we hold our people to that precludes us ever crossing certain lines like are used by many of our adversaries, everything from blackmail to all sorts of extortion, et cetera, prohibited completely from doing those things for very good reason. But even short of that, again, people establishing their own boundaries of what they're comfortable with. 
I want to pivot on to the the other chapter or the other part of your career. I mean, there are many chapters, but the serial collaborator part. And <laughs> I don't even know where to begin here, Karen. I mean, I've got the Director of Science and Technology, Director of Military wow. Affairs, Deputy Chief of Counterintelligence Near East Division, yeah. Iran Operations Division, Director mm. of Intelligence Programs. Um, yeah. Give me a good place to start or, mm. or help me walk through that that sure. phase of your career. So I, I do have to correct you. I was never the director of science and technology. I was the chief of operations, which yep. is slightly different, it, but an important distinction because my boss was uh, in charge and I certainly do not want to uh, wear her stripes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was but my accent. No, I, that, me I meant to say directorate. Okay, of gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Director. Okay, no, I just didn't want to, exactly, I didn't want to wear her rank. So yeah, I think, and I alluded to this before, but I think my time in the war zone, I spent quite a bit of time in Af Afghanistan and Iraq. And I think that focusing on the counterterrorism target, to be sure, but then also working quite a bit, I was in charge of a base, as I said, that was co-located with our military counterparts. And so I developed a lot of rapport with those folks. And when I came back to the States, they had asked me to see if I would help them. This was when we were starting to see a lot of interference from Iran inside of Iraq and Afghanistan. And in particular, we were starting to have terrible casualties from the EFPs and the IEDs that the Iranians were supplying the Taliban in Afghanistan and then also the... Um, ISIS in, or actually, I guess at the time, Al-Qaeda in, in Iraq at the time. And so I was asked to, to set up a, what was sort of a red cell effort. It was going to be a community cell that would come together to try to leverage a bunch of the different organizations inside of the intelligence community, but it frankly was even larger than that. We included some non-traditional partners like Department of Commerce and Treasury to say, okay, what are all of the levers that we have that we can pull against Iran in order to curb their behavior? And so that was sort of my first official foray into a no-kidding enterprise where I would bring people to the table and have them talk about ways in which we could optimize our bites at the apple when it came to Iran. And it was a great experience for me. I learned a lot about the community. And it also, again, goes back to that whole idea that I think I grew an appreciation for not just it reinforced, obviously, what I knew my organization could bring to the table because we had such talented people, but also realizing, okay, how do we sequence our approaches to a particular target so that, again, we can not just sanction them, but we could also try to pitch them. And then if that didn't work, we could work with the Department of State to revoke V. And so when you have all these people sitting at the table, you have this incredible opportunity to talk through some of these things and also just making intelligence that previously had been unavailable, in particular to our colleagues, for example, in the Department of Treasury. It was amazing that you had some really gifted, young, talented analysts over there that were helping us piece together Iranian financial activity. And so, yeah, I think that was my initial foray. And I think it was just 
accentuated. I, I did a, I was lucky enough to get pulled up to do a job on our seventh floor to be an EA for our deputy director. And I was growing in that appreciation for the interagency piece. But then that experience also broadened my appreciation for the whole organization. Up until then, I had really just been operating inside of the directorate of operations, which is obviously where I come from. And I loved that work. But this gave me an opportunity to see all of the different, you know, the Directorate of Analysis, the Directorate of Science and Technology. I had a chance to Directorate of Support, all of these entities and how incredibly essential each and every one of them were to the mission, which frankly, when you're inside of your own stovepipe, you, you often t- don't take the time to look up, mostly because you're too busy which isn't a good excuse, but it's probably accurate for most of us. And so when I had that experience, it gave me that greater appreciation. And then I also, because of who my boss was and the fact that he his role was to be part of these policy discussions at the National Security Council, I was responsible for pre- helping to prep his materials for every one of these discussions on every issue that the president wanted noodled through on the national security agenda. And so it gave me this incredible exposure to, again, this cadre of officers working in all these agencies that broadened my horizons. And I think that's when I made the decision that I also wanted to have that experience down at the NSC to see firsthand as an agency, we're implementers of policy. We don't, we are executors of policy. We do not make policy, you know, serving down at the NSC was just an incredible opportunity to understand the policymaker and and sort of the threshold of, you know, how do they consume intelligence? How do they take what we've given them and make decisions? What are the kinds of, one of the things that I loved the most about being down there was sitting in the DCs and the PCs and hearing the questions that policymakers would ask about an issue. So it wasn't the briefing. So, I mean, and frankly, I, I mostly, if I was up on an issue, I would know what the analysts were going to brief. I wanted to know, okay, what are those things that, what are the red lines? What are the things that the Secretary of Defense is worried about? What are the things that the Secretary of State is worried about? And in many respects, it was mind-blowing sort of to listen to all these competing priorities and then to make sense of all of those, to rack and stack, and then be able to come away to say, okay, got it. We understand. So we'll pause on this, but we'll execute. I mean, and then trying to find those hierarchy of competing, sometimes competing interests and coming out with a a way forward. And sometimes it was not nearly as uh, efficient a process as, you know, you would want it to be, but that's part of the process, right? When you have all the players at the table, it makes it messy because everybody does come in with their own ideas of how things should go forward, their own priorities, their own equities. And so, yeah, it was just, it was an extraordinary experience. That's probably the assignment where I learned more than any other, just because it was so outside of my comfort zone up until that time. So it was incredible. And I I certainly was able 
to come back to my organization with, with a much better appreciation of how to prepare information and how to present it to a policymaker where, where it was more digestible, more helpful, and was more likely to facilitate discussion and, and coming to some sort of a decision. And, and that proved incredibly invaluable just in terms of how to triage, to know how to present information, what to present, when to present it. That time both on the seventh floor and there, that cumulative sort of two plus year stint was probably, again, the most formative in terms of my professional development and obviously building out your network that whole time. Mm. And who was the deputy at that point? His name was Steven Kappas. Mm. So um, one of my greatest mentors and one of the best leaders I've ever worked mm. with. He was he was extraordinary. He was uh, great to work for and just a role model on so many different levels. I haven't had the experiential viewpoint into all of this but just as a historian <laughs> like sitting at the national archives mm. or sitting at one of the presidential libraries and trying to piece together how policy gets made like mm -hmm. to me that was so fascinating but even yeah. like the first time i was like who is this undersecretary of state for political affairs <laughs> right. and then like wow he's actually really important yes. and in fact <laughs> He's actually more on top of this Soviet Afghan war stuff than the deputy or the actual secretary because yes, they're so busy either right, doing other stuff. But, exactly. But this is his ballywick and mm -hmm. he's running with it. And I'm like, wow, who, who would knew? have known? Who knew? And, who, and yes. who are his interlocutors? Who's he yeah. speaking to? And then you find out that it's not just the yeah. president sitting, making every decision. There's, no. there's a lot of other moving parts. Yes. If it works the way it should work. And I, I do think as cumbersome as it can be and as exasperating as it can be, because there's the downside of of a really rigorous NSC process, as you can ask any headquarters officer, is that our agency tends to be the machine that feeds that beast in terms of analytical assessments, briefers, things like that. And so that's just one piece of it, because then you're also feeding the oversight, all of the the members of Congress or their staff that need to be kept apprised of things. And so it can often feel like you spend very little of your time on operations and almost all of it on managing, feeding the policymakers what they need and then managing oversight. But at the end of the day, I would remind people, these are the people who set our right, right and left limits, and they're the people that provide us the money to execute operations. So it is no small thing to make sure that if we feel strongly about moving forward with a particular program or, or operations, et cetera, that we invest the time to make sure that they can make really informed decisions about those operations. And just to be clear, so when you said that you learned the most, are you talking about when you were the EA to the deputy or when you were the director of intelligence programs so, at the NSC? Yeah, I sort of consider that a, a hybrid assignment okay. because the first year plus was up on the seventh floor as the EA for our deputy director where, again, I, I sort of learned the inner workings of my own organization. And then the, the second part of that you know, year was at the NSC. So I, I considered that sort of a, a coupled assignment and the one dovetailed very nicely into the other because stepping from that, you know, having sort of 
helped prepare the products, the briefings, everything else for the principal that would attend that. It was sort of a natural segue to say, okay, well, now let me see more broadly, what does this look like on the receiving end? Mm. So that's why I sort of couple them together. And I would say combined, they were probably the two, that experience, that two-year stint was by far the most educational for me, both as an intelligence professional, as well as a leader. You also have access. And as I said, you watch people, you see what's effective, you see what's not effective. You're able to witness firsthand leadership styles, behavior. It's just really an extraordinary opportunity and experience. And when you've done that dual assignment, how does it work as is it like from then on you don't go back to the field? Or is it is it as clean a break as that? Or does no. it depend on the, no, no, the no. person? Yeah, there's, there are plenty of people who would do those kinds of assignments and still go back. I, I shouldn't say plenty. In the directorate of operations, most people spend the preponderance of their careers overseas. That's just the nature. It's what people are most passionate about. It's where we excel. It's how we get promoted, etc. I'm sort of unusual in that I made the decision for personal reasons, as I said, to take myself out, off of the operational track sort of mid-career because I recognized with the changes in my personal life and my situation that finding somewhere where my husband and I could serve together, dealing with elder care. There was just this sort of confluence of events that transpired on, on in my personal life that affected my ability to go overseas. Had I had more flexibility, I think I probably would have ended up back overseas. But no regrets. I mean, the the jobs that I ultimately had at headquarters were very fulfilling. I really enjoyed them. And, and as I said, if I had to self-evaluate where I felt like I potentially contributed to mission, it would have been those last few assignments that I had inside of our headquarters or deployed from headquarters to sister agencies. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. And for the director of intelligence programs at the NSC, mm -hmm. what 
What's the kind of Cliff Notes version of what that does? I mean, it sounds like right. there's a lot going on there, a lot of moving parts. But yeah. for listeners, like, mm-hmm. how would you break that down? So my my primary, I was not. There's a senior director, and there's multiple directors inside of the Directorate of Intelligence, and. I don't actually know the current composition because I obviously served there <laughs> over a decade ago and I'm dating myself now, but but it had representatives at the time I was there from the agency, NSA, and FBI. So you had sort of different representatives and we all had slightly different portfolios. My portfolio and the preponderance of what I spent my time on was the president's covert action programs. So this was essentially my role was the oversight role for the for the programs. The the way that the covert action programs exist is that they mandate a review on an annual basis. So that in some would be sort of the top bullet on my performance evaluation was, you know, did I get through the annual review? I was in charge of working with the senior director and then the staffs from the other bureaus because you you don't do anything in isolation on pulling together the annual reviews. I was also in charge for, and this would go through the process of an IPC, a DC, and then the PC And then ultimately those recommendations would be brought forward to the president and he would say if there were any recommendations and it could be anything from renew with no change. But by the time it got to him, he was deciding on, is this still relevant? Is it still comply with what matters to my administration at this point in time? Are there any legal considerations that have changed? All those sort of major major pieces of what goes into covert action, but most importantly is the policies and objectives. Like, does this still meet my threshold for what I want my administration to be focused on and does it need to be tweaked or edited? Normally all of that was people in the administrations obviously know what the president's priorities were. So we would be working most of that so that by the time it reached him, there were specific recommendations like change language XYZ or this covert action findings no longer needed, boom, boom, boom. So, but again, really interesting, you know, had a chance to do that, the year review, annual review. And then also as a sort of corollary to that, anything related to those covert action programs. So when there were discussions about counterterrorism policy or anything that implicated any of the programs, I would work to make sure that everybody had the proper accesses. I managed the more mundane pieces of the administrivia, like the the whole security process, who's read in, who's, who's not. Some programs were much more sensitive than others. So in some cases, the National Security Advisor would decide personally who could be read in. So just each program, slightly unique. They all had sort of core commonalities, but all managed slightly differently. And the DC and the PC, that's the principals committee and, and the, the deputies, deputies committee. committee, right? And then the NSC meeting is the pr- all of the principals with the president. So it's a hierarchy. The IPC is typically, let's say, if it, that's usually a, at sort of that expert level that you were talking about. So the IPC is usually whoever the resident expert. So let's say you're having a discussion on Iraq, you would have probably from the agency the director 
at the time the director from from Near East Division or now the AD from NEMIC, the Near East Mission Center, would be at the table for that discussion. So that's the IPC level, sort of that more working level that can speak to operational equities, strategy, Paul, at the nuts and bolts level, like, okay, what what are we really talking about? What's really implicated? What are the trade-offs that we need to highlight for the policymakers, the deputies, committee was the folks that usually your deputies of your agencies. So in our case, the deputy director would attend those meetings. And then the principal committee meeting is the directors of all the different agencies. So who DCIA, the DNI. So you have sort of this upward funnel where decisions are made, recommendations are sort of kicked up. And then a lot of times what would happen is the IPC would make recommendations, kick it up to the deputies committee meeting. At the deputies committee meeting, they'd say, this is not ready for prime time. Go back to square one because we're not going to entertain X, Y, Z. They'd push it back to the IC with very specific asks that would say, by such and such a date, you need to have provided us new options for X, Y, Z. So the deputies did a lot of the haggling and and sort of, okay, when is this ready really to elevate it to the principals? Because for obvious reasons, the principals are extraordinarily busy and pulling them all together multiple times only to have them have to kick things back down to get fixed is a non-starter. So you really, by the time something got to the principals committee, it was typically pretty well baked, and you already had had side discussions and negotiations between different agencies if there were points of contention. Everybody, if there were existing points of contention, everybody knew what they were going into the meeting, so you knew where the discussion was going to be focused on whatever that topic was. There's so much I could pull out here, <laughs> and I'd love to discuss more, but uh, yeah, I feel like we could, we could go until midnight. <laughs> so I think just a couple of, a few other things I wanted to touch on was your final role, which mm-hmm. um, was, is really fascinating to mm-hmm. me, and then briefly touch on being the station chief in Iraq, and then also um, mm-hmm. serving in Afghanistan, and then the presidential transition mm-hmm. to Biden. So mm-hmm. I guess maybe before we go into the, your final mm-hmm. position, station chief in Iraq, that sounds... So no, I was sorry, I was no. not no okay. no no I was a a base chief in base Iraq. Chief, so sorry, nope, I was sorry. never I I worked for the station chief. I okay. was never yes. Again, I don't want to wear somebody else's title. So okay, no, no, a I very a, a very it was a wonderful experience. Yes. So yeah, I'm sorry. It's no, been no, a long that's day. that's all right. No worries, Andrew. I just don't want anybody to accuse me of overinflating my experience. I had a wonderful career, but I I was not station chief in Iraq. But it was a, a wonderful experience, yeah. Well, it, I mean, I guess like chief of base, but I guess mm-hmm. um, Afghanistan and Iraq, like mm-hmm. obviously in the in the past sort of twenty years, mm-hmm. those are two places that have loomed large in national security. Oh yes. T- t- tell us about your experience of both of them. Yeah. How were they different? How were um, they similar? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, did you enjoy one more than the other? Was one more challenging yeah. than the other? They were completely different experiences. The Afghanistan one, the best word I can use to describe it is it was expeditionary. It really was the Wild West. We were there at the very beginning. We were in a, a base that we had sort of just 
taken over. We didn't have hot water. For example, there were this tower that we filled with water that we would let the sun heat up. And then we were all allowed to have like three minute showers. We would literally <laughs> sit and time each other like, you got to get, you know, because there was a limit of that. So it, it was just everything was so new. And it was just, it was really the very, very beginning building blocks of setting our footprint down in Afghanistan and building the very initial partnerships with the local Pashtu tribes and and with leaders in the community. When I went back a couple of years later as the deputy director's EA, this place was huge. The base was this glorious. <laughs> and I started laughing. I was like, what? The, the, and he's like, Case officer, I thought you said that this this place was <laughs> sticks and bricks. I said, oh, let's be clear. It looked nothing like this when I was here. <laughs> but it was just this, it had just grown and, and really evolved in, into a mature base. And we were what you call outside the wire. When I was there, we were absolutely in this honeymoon phase where we were out meeting with the locals. We had a buddy system and we carried weapons for self self-defense, but a very different experience than, you know, fast forward four years to Iraq. And I was inside of a military base inside of a special operations compound. Our base was sort of nestled inside of that. And the military were wonderful hosts. It was a complete, I wasn't rarely ever outside the wire, except for when we were flying down because one of my roles as the chief of base was as the senior intel advisor to the commander of special operations. And so he and I would fly down every Friday to meet with the station chief. So spending that time inside the wire was so, you know, there was nothing expeditionary about that experience. But what it was, was, again, that initial foray into collaboration and working with them. I was also in charge of a team of very smart, very talented young officers who were mostly from the Directorate of Science and Technology who were there. And their primary mission was really to focus on exploiting a lot of the what we call the special the site exploitation that was taken off of different raids and working hand in glove with the military on that aspect of intelligence gathering when they were doing the raids against al-Qaeda in Iraq. And so a very, very different atypical for an agency officer. It wasn't your traditional recruiting, developing, any of that. It was a much more niche experience, but pretty extraordinary to watch, you know, again, having been assigned there for a year, just seeing that interagency collaboration because you had representatives from FBI, CIA, DIA, NSA, NGA, and several of them actually worked in the base under my rubric just because we had the facilities for compartmented information, et cetera. So yeah, it was uh, a great experience, but very so different than my experience in Afghanistan. The Afghanistan experience, although it was not traditional, it was more traditional in the sort of case officer cadre of work that we do. And then let's walk up to your final position. Could you just FBI. tell 
Yeah. yeah, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. I think that this is a really fascinating role. Yeah. So my final assignment was I was asked to, to go over to serve as the CIA's senior rep to the FBI. And it was funny. This was one of those that I was voluntold, and it ended <laughs> up being I, – I feel like I overuse this, but it, it's just – I've been so lucky to have all of these incredible opportunities, and it really was transformative. I think I I had worked with the Bureau all over the place, everywhere I had served, virtually. And so I was very familiar with them in the field. Back at headquarters, we, we dealt with them when I was in counterintelligence, et cetera. But this was, I, I don't think you ever have a full appreciation of an organization until you're sort of inside the belly of the beast. And I would argue that I was there at probably one of the most fascinating times <laughs> of, of recent FBI history. I came in in June of 2018. I believe it was June of 2018. I'm trying to remember when I retired now. This is pretty sad. So 17, I'm sorry. And two days after I arrived, Comey, the then director of FBI, was relieved of duty. And so I was there for the ensuing the ensuing period of time while Andrew McCabe was the acting director and then when Christopher Ray ultimately came in as director and tell anyone who listened that it again was an incredible lesson in leadership just watching the FBI go through an incredibly tumultuous time. I was as the senior rep, I was in on their set, the equivalent of their seventh floor, their seventh floor, and was in just about every senior level executive meeting. And I was 201, incredibly impressed with the professionalism exhibited by that leadership to include Andrew McCabe. There's obviously different views on his leadership, but my experience was that he was extraordinarily professional, cool under fire, and treated me during my time there extraordinarily well. And more importantly, just they kept the trains running. I can still remember Andy came in the day after Comey had been relieved, sat down and said, you know, yesterday the mission of the FBI was to protect the homeland and uphold the Constitution. Today, the mission of the FBI is to defend the Constitution and, and protect the homeland. And I just thought, wow. I mean, and then not another word, just moved on to the daily briefings. And it, it was just such a remarkable time to just witness a lot of that transition. And then similarly, Ray came in and, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of Chris Ray's. I think he's He's got incredible professional integrity. I think he is in the job for all the right reasons. And I think he is an incredible strategic thinker that will position the FBI for greater success going forward, particularly as it relates to its intelligence portfolio. I think, like so many people, I had no appreciation for how vast their mission set is. They essentially have all of the agency's mission, but domestically focused. And then in addition to that whole mission, they've got their law enforcement mission. And it's extraordinary. And they're able also to manip leverage 
their law enforcement capabilities in support of their intelligence mission. And I think there's just tremendous amount of growth in particular as they grow into that, as they mature as an intelligence entity and build out that capability. Because again, they're, they're incredibly patriotic. They're hardworking, mission-focused people. They're I always joke that the reason that CIA and FBI officers often butt heads is because they're all so much alike. <laughs> so, but it was, yeah, an extraordinary, it was extraordinary to witness it, to be a part of it, even tangentially, and to be able to support them in some small capacity as they were going through all of this. And you, did you ever have any moments where you thought to yourself, I wish I had applied to the FBI? Or you? <laughs> well, no, I, I have no regrets. I think if anything, I have regrets that, and I think this is true, you know, I said this earlier, the older I get, the dumber I realize I am. And so I think it's like anything. I wish I had understood more about the organization and how we could partner more effectively Earlier in my career, I think we do all get very tribal. We get very territorial. We think somebody else's success is our failure. And I'm fortunate that I, I eventually came to a point in my career where I realized that was not the case and that, frankly, rising tides lift all boats. But, but that took a long time. And I, I think if I have a regret, it would be that I probably, I, I very early on to, in my career, as that time spent as chief of base in Iraq taught me very early to appreciate more broadly and intimately the military relationship and partnership. I just wish I had come to the table in the same way, in a more meaningful way with the FBI, because again, they have capabilities and expertise that is very unique, that is and can be extremely useful to the agency and to the broader national security mission set. And so that would be my regret, but not necessarily that I would change it because I'd also like to think that in small, some small measure, I, I helped broaden the understanding between the two organizations in some small measure during my two years there. That's for others, I suppose, to judge, <laughs> not I. And the, when you were there, was this mainly dealing with counterintelligence, counterterrorism, uh, all of the above? All of the above, but counterterrorism is because of the 9-11 Commission and because of so many of the reforms that were put in place to require more effective intelligence sharing, visibility, etc., that by the time I arrived, those relationships were more well established between the organizations. The information sharing was much better established. So that, frankly, because at my level, I was dealing with problems. So those were minor tweaks, personality conflicts, all of the above, but mostly, frankly, a pretty collaborative relationship. Still maybe not as much integrated effort as there could be, but but certainly not problematic or anything close to what you had pre-9-11. The bigger challenge is how do we replicate and establish that same level of collaboration on the counterintelligence front? And when I say counterintelligence, I'm using it in the FBI lexicon, not in the CIA lexicon. So sort of counterintelligence is all of those nation state 
threats, the Chinas of the world, the Russias of the world. And so in particular, how do we more effectively share intelligence, leverage each other's resources to go after targets in the United States and overseas OCONUS that are threats to our national security? And I think what was particularly educational for me in sitting in that position at FBI was not only the opportunities that were available in CONUS that I don't think I ever had an appreciation for, but also the level of threat that, you know, I'm I'm still of the mind that I'm not convinced we haven't already had our 9-11 and we maybe just don't know it. But I think that the threat is so large and there is no way to delineate. We do so for purposes of organizational areas of responsibility. We have delineated that FBI has the lead for foreign intelligence inside of the United States and that everything outside the United States is the CIA. But candidly, our adversaries don't respect those borders. They and the Chinese and the Russians and the Iranians and the North, everybody is crossing those frontiers seamlessly and leveraging the sometimes sort of chinks in the armor to effectively kind of slip between the cracks and effectively go after whether it's infrastructure, et cetera, or target individuals. Anyway, the point is that I think my time at FBI made me aware of, again, and I know that this it's like the self-licking ice cream cone, right? I'm, I'm choosing to extract the narrative that I want to extract, but I'm going to do it anyway because I think I'm right. <laughs> um, but I think it, again, speaks to how pivotal that interagency, you cannot, you have to find a way to share intelligence, to do joint operations, to share resources. Otherwise, they are going to continue to eat our lunch. They already are, and they're going to continue to do so if we don't ramp up efforts in a meaningful way and continue to strive to plug those holes so there is no daylight between, you know, not just CIA and FBI, but DOD, Treasury, all, it has to be a whole of government approach to include partnering with the private sector. I mean, as evidenced with the rise of ransomware, with the rise of all of these cyber attacks, the fact that countries like Russia are hiding behind these criminal organizations to launch what are essentially state-sponsored attacks against the United States, so they're hiding in plain sight. This is a huge, huge threat to our country. And unless we're able to really line up all of those capabilities and making sure that we're putting our best foot forward, we're, we're not going to be able to stop the avalanche. And so, so I will continue harping on that important piece when I know that uh, it's not always popular, but I think it is absolutely the right answer. And I know that this... I think this NSC is certainly the folks that are staffed staffing the NSC are are certainly committed to that idea that that whole government approach, at least the strategy and policy papers I saw during the tra Biden transition process, were very promising in that regard. You know, a very eyes wide open understanding of public part private partnership, 
interagency collaboration. So I think it's trending in the right way and just needs to continue to move in that direction. And did you know that that was going to be your final position in the agency when you when you took up that job? Or I didn't, no. But again, just based on personal situation, I just realized that I really needed to just step off. I I don't do well with multitasking. And, <laughs> and what I found is that rightfully, then director Haspel should have and had every right to put me in a position, a senior position, which would have required an extraordinary level of effort, time away from family, travel, all of the above. And I realized that I was not able at that particular point in time to continue to give that level of effort. I had a young son at home and again, an ailing family members. And so I made the personal decision that if I didn't feel like I could give something 100%, I wasn't comfortable in making a commitment because the people below you are giving that and then some. And so if you're not prepared to equally excel, then I think you're doing your coworkers a a huge disservice. And I I think I knew I was at that point where I needed to get off the um, treadmill, but I didn't leave with any reservations about the organization or with, I feel like I had this storied career. I feel like there were very few opportunities that I was not afforded. And as I said, I loved every assignment. I would not change anything because it all happened exactly as it was supposed to happen. And Mm. so I'd like to think I'm a better person for it. I mean, that's an incredible career. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) And since you left the agency, I know that you were involved in the Biden transition Mm -hmm. team. So just to kind of tie all of this off, tell us about that and then what the future holds for Karen Schaefer. Is there Uh. (laughs) there other things that you see on the horizon or are you... I don't know. Are the are the yeah? Give us yeah. a sense of so, what's going on. Um, well, I was very honored that they reached out and asked me to join the transition. I helped out initially on the DNI and the agency one, but then they brought on more folks to cover down on DNI. So I focused on the what's called the agency review team for CIA, and it was great. I, it was a wonderful opportunity to help prepare some thoughts for the incoming director to educate him on what challenges he would be facing, what we felt would be where his time would be best served, especially in that sort of initial 90-day window as he's getting up to speed because after about 90 days or six months, he's going to have his own agenda probably before then. He's a smart guy. So really spent from September through January with the most extraordinary cadre of people, both on my team. But I was talking to someone this morning and I said, you know, it still amazes me the caliber of people that they recruited for that transition. I've been on the receiving end of many of these teams and the professionalism and level of experience from all of these people was unbelievable. And I'm still, you know, I I tell people I was so impressed that one of the very first briefings that I got during the transition team was a legal briefing and an ethics briefing, basically telling me if you're going to be part of this, you cannot be 
deriding any personal benefit from this. You need to cease and desist on any financial activities that would in any way implicate your participation in this this process. And I just thought that was such a such an extraordinary thing. And and there was an incredible focus similarly from day one on diversity when we were building out all of the agency review teams, making sure that diversity of thought, diversity of backgrounds, and then obviously diversity, gender, ethnicity, et cetera. And so just all things that were music to my ears as someone who's devoted to all of those things, professionalism in the in the bureaucracy. And so I, I was so happy to see certainly at least that level of rigor go into the thought process of so much of the planning for even building out the team, transition team, let alone the actual execution on the ground. And then as always, my agency made me very proud because they pulled out all the stops for the review team. They made the process incredibly user-friendly for us. The agency knows how to show up. They are, I will argue that we have some of the smartest people, but extraordinary briefers, extraordinary, I mean, analysts that just are so good at what they do that it, it just it never ceases to impress me when I sit and listen to you. You're looking at these folks and it feels like they're children, you know, they're these 20 somethings and they're so bright and so enthusiastic and so poised and polished. And I'm thinking, think that I was ever like that, <laughs> but it, it's a point of pride to be sure. So I was, it just certainly was heartening to that my first foray stepping back in. So it was a great experience. And I'd like to think that we helped. Stephanie O'Sullivan was the lead for the team and she's an absolute luminary in the intelligence world. And I have so much respect for her. And she did a great job of leading us all on the team. And I think, I think I'm proud of what we prepared for the incoming director. And certainly he seemed pleased and receptive to our thoughts on areas of focus and priorities and whatnot. So but uh, he's got a lot of experience, so I'm sure he can call the wheat from the chaff, <laughs> and already is. As for what's next, I stepped off in part to, I, I joke, it's sort of monkey paw, the monkey paw story that I took time off to spend with my son, who I adore and had no idea that I would be locked down with him for a year. So I feel like it's a lot of quality time I've had with him. And if anybody has a six-year-old boy out there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I love him dearly, but no one is more excited than I am about camp five days a week this summer. So I think, you know, I will, I'm starting obviously doing a stint with the Spy Museum. I will make a plug for the, the Spy Museum. I think it's a fabulous organization. And what drew me the most to the Spy Museum is their uncompromising efforts to strive to present the most accurate picture of intelligence. And in my mind, it's one of the best ways to recruit the next generation so that they can understand and appreciate how invaluable intelligence is, but also how awe-inspiring the work of intelligence is. So it's something I'm very passionate about. I spend a tremendous amount of time mentoring young people who are applying 
um, to the organization or interested in applying. I also am doing some speaking for different leadership groups and also for GW and George Mason and Georgetown, which has been a lot of fun with friends of mine in the community that asked me to come in and speak about being an operations officer. I think I'm taking my time. I'm trying to be very deliberate. I'm also on the board of the Third Option Foundation, which is something that I am extraordinarily passionate about. It is a nonprofit that is dedicated to assisting our paramilitary officers that have been killed or wounded in action and their families. So uh, I can think of no better way to repay in particular, the ultimate sacrifice these folks have made than to make sure that their families are cared for after we've lost them. So um, it's something I feel very strongly about. And then probably look to doing some consulting, but I'm still being very particular, and I like that for the time being. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for coming in and speaking to me. (laughs) Absolutely. It was my pleasure, and it's been so fun getting to know you and and talking to you, and and I'm happy to talk your ear off any other time you'll have me. (laughs) (laughs) To be continued. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network, and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.